Well, good morning, and uh, I don't often get a round of applause when I come up, so that's, that's a good start anyway. Um, I'm really thankful to be here, um, to give you a little background of why, because somebody came up and asked me, so how do you know Simon? And it's not, it's not really the connection with Simon so much as uh, I pastored a church here in Portland for 23 years. Um, 15 of those as senior pastor, and I just stepped down in 2010. I actually came to Portland in 1986 in the, you know, kind of a midlife crisis. You know, I was on a corporate ladder, you know, going through uh, vice president of sales and marketing and trying to, you know, live the dream and all that, and then God said, no, I got something else for you. Some people got red sports cars for a... um, midlife crisis. I got the pastorate instead. So anyway, so I came here to go to seminary and never left. I ended up working in the church that I started serving in with youth uh, uh, up until I uh, stepped down again in 2010. In the congregation I was in was a guy named Ken Marks, which most of you probably know him. He's sitting over here. Um, He's not very shy in retiring, so you've probably met him before. And it's my understanding that he has been harassing your pastor for uh, a couple of years uh, to get me uh, to have a chance to preach here. And so I think Simon was finally worn down, and when it was time for his vacation, he invited me to come. So anyway, that's how uh, I ended up here. And I came this morning, uh, came early, uh, you know, wanted to check the place out. I thought maybe I could kind of slip in incognito, nobody would know. I don't know if it was my peach-colored shirt that uh, gave him a clue that I was the guest preacher. Maybe the fact that I was 40 years older than anybody else in the room uh, might have given him a clue. Um, so, uh, but it's been awesome being here. Uh, there's incredible energy in this, in this church. Um, in the time that I've been here, there, we had two meetings, you know, kind of brief, not real meeting meetings, but, you know, meetings to get ready for the service. But every one of those meetings was a meeting to pray for what was going to happen today. Uh, I understand there were a couple of people up praying before we even got started. Um, there's a prayer up here. I saw everybody gather. I said, well, there must be either, you know, either they're rolling dice up there or they're having a prayer meeting. So I, I went up to join them. And, um, and again, it was the leadership team all praying for the day. Uh, and so I was able to join him in that. And then when I left and came to sit down, I'm just looking around and realizing that people left from that meeting and they were standing individually different places, you know, just quietly praying about the day. So if, if there's a lot of good energy in this church, it's because, you know, people are not only serving, but they're seeking God in that and seeking the Spirit's leading. So that's, it makes it a really awesome experience to be able to be here. Um, so Pastor uh, Simon asked me if I would carry on this series that you're in. You're in, you know, the Gospel of Mark. And so he gave me this passage and said, I, if you can, I don't know, it's Father's Day. I don't know if it's a real Father's Day passage, and it's not. And it's not going to get tweaked to become one. So uh, anyway, so, but getting ready for today, I wanted to know the context that it was coming from. So I went back and I list, listened to the last two messages that Pastor Simon gave. And I, I'm, I'm really glad I did. And I want to just share with you uh, what I think you already know, because I've kind of heard the rumblings of it from people and the leadership team with him being gone. 
uh, how blessed you are to sit under that man's teaching. Uh, uh, you know, he is clearly, in the two messages I heard, very honest, very transparent, and a faithful handler of the word of God. And that, that is a gift for you guys um, every week to be able to, to, to have that. And uh, I'm glad he's getting a break and to get away. And I just encourage you to be sure that you never take him for granted and affirm him when you have the chance. The, the pastorate is an incredible gift. It, it's it's a, kind of an amazing thing to know that God has entrusted you to share the word of God with a, a group of people. And, uh, and so that's really awesome, but it can also be really hard, and it can be really lonely. Um, and so that doesn't always show, especially uh, if... Uh, if the pastor is just really outgoing and kind of he's okay all the time, um, just just be sure you're encouraging him and checking in on him. Good man. Um, so uh, if you have Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, I, there's some around. There's boxes of them somewhere along the back, along the sides, so you can get one. Um, I'm preaching out of the NIV, which uh, is, I think, the same thing that the Bibles here are. Um, I also spent some time going through the Gospel of Mark, just reviewing it. You know, I mean, I didn't read the whole thing. I've read it before many times, but I kind of went back to kind of look at the highlights. And one of the things that really struck me was how often, all the way up through chapter 8, Jesus is, seemed like kind of trying to fly under the radar a little bit. You know, he performs miraculous signs and wonders. He does healings and stuff. He raised somebody from the dead. And then he says, but don't tell anybody. You know, like, that's not going to happen. But I think what he was doing was a desire to be sure that rather than just starting out by declaring, I'm the guy you've been waiting for, I'm the Messiah, he wanted to reveal what kind of Messiah he is before he openly declared uh, his place. And so it was like that all the way up until chapter 11. And in chapter 11, everything changed. Once he got on that colt and began to ride into the city of Jerusalem, he was declaring, I am your king, returning to my city. Um, declaring that he is the Messiah, he is the one. Um, and the conflict that had been brewing between him and the leadership would just came to a head because now the line in the sand is drawn and you're either for him or against him. And uh, really, really powerful time. And it's ironic to me, and I'm sure you've talked about it uh, before many times, just how weird it is are, uh, that those who were most prepared to recognize him, those who had the greatest access to scripture, prophecy, who should have been able to know he was coming were the ones who had no interest in receiving him. They weren't even asking the questions. I mean, the leadership wasn't looking into things going on and the people talking and saying, hey, could it be? Could it possibly be true that he is what he claims to be or what everybody is talking about? They don't ask that question. They're too concerned about preserving their religion and trying to make sure that he doesn't disrupt it or cause a problem. They just want to be rid of him. And it really, like I said, came to a head in the passage you looked at last week, the parable of the tenants. When Jesus said that 
the, the owner of the, of the field is going to remove the, those who were there and give it to others. And the leadership knew they were, he was talking about them and they went away angry. They went away looking for a way to see if he could be arrested, to see if they could eliminate him somehow. Um, and when you get to chapter 12, what's happening is there are little groups of leadership. Now, it's kind of like guerrilla warfare. So they're not all coming at once. We've got little pockets that come to Jesus with a question. They come with a question, but it's not a question to find out information. It's not a question to try to clarify anything or try to learn something from the teacher. It's questions trying to trap him, trying to, to get him to say something that will discredit him with the people or put him in a position where they can arrest him. Um, there's one group that comes, Pharisees and Herodians. We're not going to deal with those. Um, we're going to be looking at verse 18 and talking about the Sadducees who come. So we're in chapter 12, verse 18. Let me pray as we get ready to look at the word of God. Father, we just come to you today and I pray that you would open up our eyes to be able to, to see and understand the things that you have for us today. Um, help us not to be um, kind of overconfident that we've just got it all figured out. Let us always be people who are always looking for answers and always asking, always wanting to, to know if, we're, if we have somehow begun to, to go astray, that we'd be open to hear when you keep pulling us back to the truth. And today, uh, I pray that we would... Um, just be renewed and affirmed in the truth. And uh, God, just ask for your spirit to, to use this time for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children... The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At, that, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since she was married to all seven. And, you know, you read that and you just go, really? Uh, uh, let, let, me, let me clarify some things for you. First of all, I want to make sure that we understand who the Sadducees are. So if, if you've already covered this, I apologize, but it's really important to know. There, there are two primary leadership groups <coughs> at that time in, in Israel. One of them is the Sadducees, the other is the Pharisees. Pharisees were committed to preserving the word of God and the law. They wanted to be sure that, that nothing happened to compromise the truth and what God had commanded for them to do. And, and the only problem was they got so zealous for trying to protect it and trying to define it and making sure that you understood exactly what you were, could and couldn't do that it became more and more as a list of rules and a lot less about the heart of God. And so it became kind of man's law and not God's law. And so that's kind of the Pharisees were into that. The Sadducees were a very different breed of cat. They were the religious aristocracy. 
They, they are wealthy. They are well-educated. They are powerful. They controlled the leadership of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council that ultimately put Jesus on trial. Um, so they were, they were, and they were not very popular with the people because they couldn't relate to them. They were rich and, and getting richer all the time, probably partly from all of the offerings and stuff that was being sold in the temple that Jesus got so angry about. Um, the other thing about them is that they were kind of religious secularists. So th- this is what I mean by that. They, they didn't accept all of the scriptures. They only accepted the first b- five books of the, of the Torah, the, word, the word, writings of Moses. That's all they believed. So they no Psalms, you know, no prophets, you know, no history, you know, no Job, none of those things. It was only, only those first five books. They also didn't believe in angels and demons. and They didn't believe in the spirit world. They didn't believe really in miraculous power going on. Um, and, and they didn't believe in the resurrection, which is obviously a big deal, especially now as Jesus is on the path for that very thing. So that's, that's who the Sadducees that's who the Sadducees were. Stark difference to the Pharisees, but also um, it's ironic then that they come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection. But it is, it is so, uh, such a convoluted kind of question. You do need to know it comes out of the law. I mean, it's got a basis. They didn't just pull this out of it, the Levitical law actually said that if, if a man died before he had children with his wife, that his brother should marry the widow and raise children for the brother. It's in the law. The purpose of it was to maintain the nation of Israel and the descent and the inheritance. It was all part of God's plan for them. It was uh, also take care of the widows who, once they're without a husband, are really vulnerable in society. But isn't that weird? I mean, it's just something that seems kind of strange. So, but you know what? That's Pastor Simon's job. You can ask him about it when he gets back. I'm a guest (laughs) preacher. I don't have to deal with that. So, but what I do want to deal with is this whole question of seven brothers, really? You know, what a stupid idea. I mean, it is, it is a joke. And, and often we, I don't know if you read it that way, but that's what it is. That's what it was intended to be. It was a joke. They're coming to Jesus with a question that is intended to make him look like a fool when he tries to defend this doctrine of resurrection. It is meant to be uh, an an attack in in sarcasm and all of that. Jesus, (laughs) Jesus doesn't respond. uh, He just responds with uh, the truth for them. And you are in error. He could have just said, you guys are fools. Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. I mean, that whole thing, going back to Moses, that's the only books that they would accept. He goes back and he says, look, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
God says, I'm still there, God. They are still worshiping me. You know, they are still alive, even though they have passed from this life. Um, he said, you don't, know your, you don't know your scriptures. Well, they've abandoned a lot of them, and they don't believe the rest of them. And they don't believe in the power of God. They don't believe in the power of God to miraculously intervene in what's going on and make things happen. Um, when you read the Old Testament and you talk about the power of God, if the writers are trying to describe or picture the power of God for you, they often will talk about the power of God in the context of creation, right? The one who created the heavens and the earth, who created the Leviathan and the sea, the one who gave the boundaries to the sea so it can only stay there, the one who knows where the snow is hidden. Um, those are all descriptions of the power of God in the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament, and the writers of the New Testament start talking about the power of God demonstrating in the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father over every power and authority on earth and every realm. That's what they talk about power. Resurrection power. Um, but, but they didn't recognize that. They didn't recognize that kind of power. They didn't recognize the resurrection. And, you know, when, when I read a passage like this, um, it's not really hard to decide who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Is that right? I mean, you can read, read a passage like this, a Christian, and say, oh, Sadducees, bad guys, Jesus, good guy. I want to be with the good guys. I don't want to be with the bad guys. But here, here's, here's my concern. I, I think sometimes I look at that and I, and I don't realize that I might be kind of becoming one of the Pharisees or Sadducees of our day. And if that is happening, you know, in the church, in our culture, there, there, are, there are churches, there are believers, believers in, in the Christian community in our culture today who um, are, are very much like the Pharisees in the sense that they don't really believe in the power of God. They don't believe in the, in the power of God to, that he actually intervenes and acts in, in the world around us. Um, when I told you I was, uh, kind of came to the seminary and, you know, later in life, when I was, we were living in Kansas City, I was going to church, I was leading a Bible study at my, at my home with uh, young couples. I was a young couple, well, I was, married and we were a young couple then and I went to my pastor and I, I think he actually knew before I did that I was kind of on this path that I was going to end up where I am today um, but I asked him for a commentary to help me I was studying uh, teaching in one of the gospels and I just needed some help so he gave me a couple of commentaries and I didn't realize it till later that it was he was setting me up um, he wanted me to learn something about whether you can trust everything you read or not. And so he gave me these commentaries. These are written by scholars, you know, by biblical scholars. And so I open up one of them. I'm studying the feeding of the 5,000. And this commentary is explaining what happened in the feeding of the 5,000, which I thought the Bible had done pretty well. But he was going to explain it better. And what he said was that Jesus, in his teaching to these people, was so powerful so convicting that all the people who had food with them 
felt convicted of the fact of needing to open up and share, and they opened up their their lunch boxes and they shared their food with each other and there was more than enough for everyone and even with leftovers. That was the power of Jesus' teaching. Not a, not, not a miraculous feeding with uh, two fish and five loaves. Because there's a, there's a section of, of, uh, uh, of those biblical scholars and teachers and, uh, and, and unfortunately in some churches that, um, that don't, don't believe that the, in the miraculous that that can't happen. And so they have to explain all the miracles in a way that actually makes sense. And... So that's what my pastor wanted me to know. Be careful what you read. Make sure that you know that you check what's going on. Um, but I think for a group like this, um, good teaching, I, I think the danger for us is more subtle than that. Um, let me ask you, how many of you here believe that there will be a resurrection someday, that you will be raised from the dead into the kingdom of God. Okay. I'll just say that's all of you. Maybe if a few of you are not sure about that yet, that's okay. Um, so I, me too, you know, and I think that's the right answer. You know, if we're asking questions about the resurrection, we say, yes, I believe there's a resurrection. But, but here's the thing I, I'm kind of concerned about is whether that resurrection is real enough is it something that has uh, some concreteness to it? Is it? Or is it just a vague idea? Is it something that doesn't really impact today because it's not about today, it's about when I die. So someday it'll matter. It doesn't matter yet. And that's not what the resurrection is about. I, there, there is a... Um, passage in first Peter a couple of verses that I want to share with you today Peter was writing his first letter to churches in Asia Minor who were suffering persecution and hardship they were they they were facing very grave circumstances their faith was being challenged and tested and he wanted to encourage them how do you stand up in the face of that kind of persecution and in fear and in loss and how do you keep going I mean what makes you allow you to keep going he says this in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Man, is that good news? A living hope. That means not a hope for later, a living hope now that means living later as well. But notice, I have to be honest, when I read this in the past, I often read it, and in my mind, what I'm really hearing is that Jesus Christ has given us a new birth and a living hope by his death on the cross and his sacrifice and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of my sins. That's where I expect it to go, because that's what we talk about. That's what we talk about often. What we don't talk about often is the resurrection. We talk about it on Easter, and then often it kind of gets shoved, shoved off to the side, and we don't think about it anymore. Peter says, what you need to know, if you want to really stand up in the face of persecution, you need to know that you have something to look forward to that is bigger than today and today's problems, and that is the resurrection that you have in the future. And so he says in verse 13, Therefore, this is how you live right now, therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, 
Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed and is coming. Where do you set your hope? Set your hope on your will and your strength? No, you set your hope on the promise of the eternal kingdom that you're going to enter into. Not a vague idea of uh, some kind of harp choir in the clouds, but a very real concrete kingdom where you're gonna live and work and serve and share meals together and just one difference. There'll be no bad stuff there. It's gonna be the kingdom of righteousness. And that's what we have to look forward to. That's, but that's supposed to fuel the way you live now. It's not something you're waiting for someday. Um, my, my wife and I, over the last five years, just have gone through a really, really hard time. A, a time that really challenged our, our faith. Um, we have, well, we're, we're foster parents. We've been foster parents for 29 years. Um, and so we've had a lot of different kids, in our, but they're all kids who've come out of trauma, all, all, and they come with all kinds of challenges. And as we've served trying to love these kids and trying to encourage them, sometimes you begin to wonder, am I really having any kind of impact? That the, the issues that they have just can't be fixed in a short period of time, and so sometimes you feel like discouraged, like I'm not sure I've done enough or I've given enough. And then we have an adult son who is I think he's 40 now. Um, he was a drug addict from junior high on. I mean, we dealt with that all through the years. And here I am pastoring the church. I've got a son who is addicted to drugs. Um, I mean, it was, it was hard. It was embarrassing. It was a, 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 you know, a real personal struggle. And then we discovered when he was in his mid-30s that he was uh, bipolar that what we really had was not a drug addict so much as somebody with a mental illness who was trying to navigate life all that time and trying to figure it out the only way he knew how. Um, and with that news, which was in some ways good news, it, it left us at times feeling guilty and ashamed that somehow we had failed him, somehow we didn't understand that we weren't there. And so then we entered into a season of trying to work with him and trying to encourage him, trying to get him into help, trying to get him on medication and the things that would deal with that. And then a five or six years ago, he went through a psychotic break where voices started in his head and they took control, uh, telling him what to do. Um, he became more and more irrational and delusional, um, more and more violent. Um, we... My wife and I were talking, trying to figure out when was the last time we had a healthy conversation with him. My wife said it was like 10 years ago, um, and certainly not in the last five years. Uh, and, and so I, I have to tell you, you go through something like that with your son and uh, trying to figure out how, how to make something better, how to get him help, how to get him in a place where something is going to get done and feeling like there's no avenues there. And then every Advent, I come and I read through the scriptures of Jesus talking as he reveals himself, you know, when he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and he reads why he's come. I have come to set the captives free. I have come to give sight to the blind. I've come to usher in the year of the Lord's favor. And so I would pray every Advent, so God, what's happening with my son? I don't know anybody more captive than he is. Why won't you set him free? Um, 
I found a passage of scripture that I, I started reading during that time. It's in Ephesians chapter one. It's a prayer of Paul praying for the church in Ephesus. And let me, let me read it to you. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but the one to come. A couple of years ago, I came to that passage just in my reading. It just happened to be at Advent time. It happened to be while I was kind of crying out for my son, and I read that, and I suddenly realized that, because we didn't have any hope, I mean, that was the greatest thing that my wife and I were struggling with, no hope. And if something looked like it was going to be good happening, the kind of the expectation was, but it's probably not going to work because we didn't have any hope. And I read these verses that were telling me that I had my hope in the wrong place. My hope is to be in a, in a promise of a resurrection the promise of an inheritance, the promise of the power of God uh, through all eternity. And it also struck me that in that passage in Ephesus, Paul is writing to a bunch of Christians. He's writing to people like you, who, who you think know that, right? They, they know that. But he felt that there was not enough to be able to know it. It's not something you could just intellectually get and say, okay, I've got it. I know how it works, you know. Death on the cross, sacrifice, my sins are forgiven. Jesus rise from the dead. I get to go too. That's not, that's not enough. And so Paul said, so I'm praying for you that God will open your eyes and give you spiritual insight that you can somehow understand the incredible hope that you have and the inheritance and what's in store for you. I want you to know that now. And so it tells me that it's not enough to study it. It's not enough to know it and talk about it. We need to be praying about it. And I wrote this prayer. I personalized it. I put all eyes in there. I'm praying this, that God would open my eyes to understand the hope that I have. I encourage you to take that and pray those things as well. During that time, um, I, I was praying, you know, that... that agonizing for my son even in this and then I had a, a, a picture in my head not a vision visions are things you open your eyes and you see this was just a, a picture and it was a picture of my son it was a picture of my son in, before a picture of him alive and laughing he used to be the life of our party when we play games at home he was always made everything more fun bright energetic uh, even when he was having a tough time, that was who he was. And we had a chance to see him. And somehow in my head, I knew that this was, this was a kingdom picture. It was not a now picture. It was a someday picture in the kingdom. And I, and I have a tendency when to think of those things to kind of dismiss them. Say, oh yeah, I know someday, because I know he's a believer, someday he'll be in the kingdom. But I'm concerned about now. But I didn't go there, and I decided to just sit a minute and just, and just interact in a way with my son. And finally, over time, it came to me. If this is my son's eternity, 
I'm good with that. I'm good with that. It doesn't make the time easy now. It doesn't mean we stop hoping and praying for something to happen now to be able to change. But if I have that promise that that's what he'll have in eternity, I'm good with that. And that's the kind of hope that God has, wants us to have. But it, it's in knowing and believing in the very real resurrection that is ours and, and making sure that we really are holding on to that. Um, okay. Just one, one more little passage at the end. One more person I want to talk about. It comes to Jesus. Um, it's a teacher of the law. He comes right after the Sadducees. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus said, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the, Lo the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment that is greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, nobody dared ask him a question. <laughs> They're kind of done. Um, so... I want you to understand that this, this teacher of the law is not closer to the kingdom of God because he knows these facts. Because he knows. If you ask the question, what's the greatest commandments? Is love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself. That doesn't bring him closer to the kingdom of God. What brings him closer is the fact that he understands the heart of God. He says, you know what? You're right. These are more important than all sacrifice all the law, all the other stuff. At one point, Jesus says that the whole law and the prophets can be summed up in these two commands. That's what brings him close. He understands that. All that's left is to understand who it is, <laughs> who it is that's telling him that, you know, and, and I expect he's going to get there. Um, so that command to love sounds simple, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Uh, I've seen people do that. I'm really jealous of people that I can just see the love of God. Just, you know, they pray and you can just see the doors open. You know, you can just see the, the connection that's there. And often I feel so much wanting more in terms of that relationship um, to know what it is to love that way and to love my neighbor as myself. Oh, my gosh. I told you I was a foster parent. Um, do you know that when you have kids in your house that have come out of trauma, that they aren't always well-behaved? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, we had things happen in our house that I'd never dreamed I would be dealing with. Um, and, and I have to be honest. It, it began to expose in me some things that I thought were, you know, long done away with. I get frustrated and angry. Um, you know, punch a hole in my wall, uh, get in my face, hit my wife. You know, I mean, those are things that just, um, 
And, and so you go through this thing and beginning to wonder, my God, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if I even like them, let alone love them, but I'm called to love them. Uh, I don't know how to do that. Um, and when you struggle with that, you begin to wonder, how could God love me? Because, because I'm not being very loving. And so one of the things that I was reminded of just to kind of bring this down is that we don't love in a vacuum. The love that God calls us to is not something we can just muster up. We just can't do that. The love that we are supposed to share is a love that is a response to the love of God for us. So, you know, I heard some people talking earlier, maybe as part of the worship, you know, the fact that ah, the Father's love, that's what, that's what we need. And, and that's absolutely right. John says that it's not about us loving God is that he loved us first, said his son. And so the importance of recognizing how loved we are, no matter where we are, no matter what we've done. You know, if you're sitting here and recognizing, I've, been, I've just been so bad, how could I still be in a relationship with the, the father? How could he love me? Um, well, that's the amazing part, is that his love is bigger than all of that. Uh, and once again... When I was in that passage of Ephesians and, and that prayer, it took me on another week, and then here I am in another prayer of Paul in Ephesians, praying for a church that knows all of this stuff, but wanting to pray some things that, that needed to be spiritually enlightened. And here's what he says in chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How do you understand God's love for you? I mean, I, again, I I'm not sure that we can just figure it out. It's something that the Spirit needs to speak to us about. Paul's praying for the church that the Spirit would work a mighty work in them that they would be able to somehow grasp the ungraspable, the incredible, unlimited love of Jesus Christ. And, and that's my prayer for all of us, that, that he would allow us to have that kind of understanding of his love. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.